Hello and welcome back to Relative Digressions. I'm Flick. I'm Renner. And this is the podcast where we delve back into classic Doctor Who to compare our relative digressions. And this week we are discussing Terror of the Autons, which is a John Pertwee story from 1971, notable for being the first story that features the renegade Time Lord known as the Master. Who has just turned 50 years old. Oh, wow. This story was broadcast in January to February of 1971. So if we'd been slightly more on the ball, we could have done this two months ago and actually had it on the anniversary, but we didn't think ahead. I mean, I choose to believe that we're fashionably late, but that's okay. So do you want to give a quick summary for the audience? Sure. Basically, the plot of every story for this season, the Master has come to Earth and has teamed up with another foe of the Doctor, in this case it's the Nestine consciousness introduced in the previous season, and familiar to New Who audiences from Rose, a big blob of plastic that controls mannequins, evil killer mannequins. Well, and plastic in general. Yes, and in general, plastic. In this instance, the Master has taken over a plastics factory and is making Nestine daffodils, which will spray gunk in the face of everybody Uh, and asphyxiate them as part of a diabolical plot to take over the world. I mean... It's it's very convoluted, I have to say. But, you know, that's the master. It's proper sort of moustache-twirling, convoluted nonsense. But it doesn't feel convoluted while you're watching it. But broadly speaking, it's the master has teamed up with the Nestine to take over the world using nefarious plastic products. Notably, however, the Master is not uh, defeated. He actually escapes at the end of this episode, but he is unable to leave Earth because the Doctor has sabotaged his TARDIS. The Master will then appear in every story this season, and this is part of the wider unit era serialised nature of the stories where we have the same characters and the same settings recurring. And you will recall that when we did the invasion, we talked about this concept when it was in its infancy in its planning stages almost as if we had planned this wow we didn't we didn't plan it well enough to get this out on delgate but you know no there was an attempt right uh, so just to remind our viewers in the invasion we talked about the characters that appeared in the abominable snowman or their relatives appearing in the invasion and of course the brigadier um actually i I do want to ask in this episode which is the start of a new season uh what characters are recurring So, in a sense, Terror of the Autons is a soft reboot of the Pertwee era. Right, so there's been one season before this. There has been a season before this, but actually a lot of the stuff starts here. Joe is introduced here, the Master is introduced here, Mike Yates is introduced here. The unit aesthetic is changed. So, the unit era began a season ago, but this is almost a new jumping on point and a new start point. So, the only elements that we've seen before that were in season seven were the Brigadier and Sergeant Benton uh, and unit as a whole. So this is season eight. So this is season eight. Sure. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, Season seven had a different companion, Liz Shaw, who is shuffled off off screen somewhat unceremoniously here. Okay, so that's kind of what we've seen from the third Doctor before, but I just want to be clear... Unit was kind of introduced proper in the invasion. We've seen that in season six. And then season seven, where we transferred to the third Doctor, is where it became a really big deal. And then season eight was sort of seeing this soft reboot of Unit. So, as we discussed on the invasion, the 
element, the idea of recurring elements surfaced in season five when the Web of Fear brought back characters from the Abominable Snowmen and introduced the Brigadier. Then season six, which is where the invasion sits, they started to coherently think about, okay, let's let's actually make this kind of serial recurring aspect a part of the show. Was the idea of an Earth-based Doctor Who in their heads at that stage? Yes. Literally, what we're seeing now was in the planning stages during the invasion. You know, partially this was a creative thing, but partially it was the idea that setting things in a contemporary Earth setting would keep the cost down. I mean, you say a contemporary setting, but what year is this all happening in? That's a conversation for another time. Let's not get into the dating of Doctor Who right now. How how about we don't? Yeah, that is a that is a vortex of time, best avoided. However, the invasion was made with a coherent plan that the unit era would be grounded in this Earth setting with recurring characters. The Doctor would keep coming back to it. Would be creatively interesting, and it would keep costs down. And it was envisioned for Pat. But as we talked about both on the Mind Robber and on the Invasion, by season six, Patrick Troughton and indeed Fraser Hines were getting Done. ready to leave the show. Yeah. Part of me would have loved to have seen a season six A, if you will, where Pat gets to do that kind of more grounded contemporary stuff. That's if you've ever followed the extended universe material about season six B, that is what it is. Right, right, I see. I, I did wonder if that's kind of what they did. Season 6B, for those who... Yeah, you know, this is another rabbit hole like unit dating. Suffice to say, there's a theory that Patrick Troughton has another season after the War Games, and let's just leave it yeah, there. Let's just, we, we, we try not to d- d- delve in too deep. But you are right that it would have been... I mean, if they were up to the calibre of the invasion, you know, a whole season of invasion-level stories would have been amazing. I, I tell you what, actually, as well, you could have had Vaughn as a recurring villain. Yes, it would have been really interesting if Troughton had got a season in that mould, especially because one of the reasons that they came up with it is because there was a feeling that his era needed revitalising and that it had become this kind of monster of the week, slightly repetitious thing. On the other hand, the way that it's introduced alongside Pertwee, it has this real feeling of like a radical newness. Everything is new, and it's in colour all of a sudden. Right. I I think I've definitely heard people say before that almost Black and White Who is not entirely a separate show, but like... I said when we did The Mind Robber that I feel like the Troughton era specifically is almost a different show. Right. Presumably because to some degree they were still feeling out what... What Doctor Who was like after a regeneration, if you see what I mean? Yeah. For the second Doctor, they really had no idea what the parameters of that were. Yeah. Because there were things which stay the same about the show, even as some things change. But actually, when you're doing that for the first time, you don't know what to change. It's interesting that you say that. Because maybe the issue, the big problem with the Troughton era is it doesn't change enough. That it is too samey all the way through. There isn't a variation in texture. But I could see that being the corollary of that uncertainty right exactly and actually to move back to the episode and the era we're actually discussing uh it really feels like here they are committing to yeah this is new and different and it feels vital uh like it feels yeah full of life actually yeah i mean all that stuff about the earlier seasons isn't a digression because 
not not even you have to know that to understand the context of this, but but the unit era is consciously planned as a development because of what that was like. And to say it's a soft reboot is not to say that they are ignoring what came before by any means. Right. I mean, season eight isn't rebooting season seven in the sense of oh, it didn't work. Let's do something else. It's another run at the same thing. It's a little bit like Capaldi's last season, which is sort of a soft reboot for him. But it's not saying all that other stuff didn't happen. It's just sometimes necessary to shift where the Doctor is. Yeah. I think it's almost more like Matt Smith's second season. I mean, you might disagree, but I get the sense in Matt Smith's second season that Moffat is trying to do the same things he did in the first season, but slightly fix things that didn't go exactly how he'd envisioned them the first time. I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think season five, it is the better of the two, is my memory. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the problem with season six is that Stephen Moffat got to do his ideas too much. Uh, who actually are the main creative minds behind the show? Right, so yes, we should introduce three of the most important people in Doctor Who's history. Barry Letts, Terence Dix and Robert Holmes. So tell me about them. Terence Dix is probably the most familiar name in Doctor Who, I would say, at least pre-2005. And these days, I guess it would be Russell T. Davies, wouldn't it? So Terence Dix was brought on in 1968 as assistant script editor, became head script editor in 1969. So that's season six, The Invasion, that series. So I think you need to talk about Terence Dix and Barry Letts as a unit, actually. <laughs> you can't describe one without the other. <laughs> oh, ha-ha! Ho-ho! <laughs> 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 Getting the puns in early. Um... So Letts first worked on the show in 1967, became the producer in 1969, just after John Pertwee was cast. So the first story he worked on was The Silurians in season seven, mm-hmm. at which point Dix was head script editor. They formed a tight-knit writing partnership. The coherence of the Pertwee era's tone and vision was very much those two. They had a really clear idea. We'll talk in a little bit about how much it wears its political influence on its sleeve. And that was very heavily influenced by Barry Letts. It's an interesting dynamic, though, of, like, having a pair of writers. I actually think it's a... I mean, people talk a lot about writers' rooms nowadays, which I think are very kind of on trend. Call them showrunners, got script headers or whatever, but, like, in some sense, it's it's less about the fact that they're actually writing, but that you have some people at the core of the show who are together by their efforts providing a coherent vision. I think that's a really interesting thing, because it's not really a model that that the modern show has had. Terence Dick's vision of Doctor Who even once he'd left, stuck around, and JNT's vision starts to overwhelm it. But even then, the archetypal image that you picture of classic Doctor Who is very much the Doctor Who that Terence Sticks defined. Right. So I, I'm sort of imagining probably John Pertwee, but some Doctor facing up against some kind of rubber lizard. So a, a slightly paternalistic Doctor... A slightly chauvinistic idea of what the companion is. Like, Terence Dick's not above criticism. Yeah. That kind of slightly sub-bond kind of storylining. Lots of villainous corporations and Barry Letts, I think brought in a lot of the idea of the conflict being consequences of human action rather than 
alien interference. They really shaped, I mean, the Pertwee era, but also just a lasting legacy. Right. That, like, they just had a massive impact right, on the show, okay. at least as much as, like, RTD in his time. For sure. Were there people who were nostalgic for the Terence Dix days after he left, in the way that people are nostalgic for the RTD days? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Certainly there, there were people under J&T who really didn't like J&T and were kind of like, oh, you'd never get this under Dix and Leps. Right, right. I mean, it's good to know, of course, as ever, that Doctor Who fandom never changes. Yeah, it never, it never changes. And then the other big name is the actual writer of this story, right. Robert Holmes, possibly the most famous writer in the history of Doctor Who. Who I've heard of. I mean, I, I sort of associate him more just from conversations we've had or just from reading in general with uh, the Tom Baker era, I guess. Right. The Hinchcliffe and Holmes era is that iconic Tom Baker, hammer horror, inflected, the hat and the scarf era that people think of. That's that's Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes. Right. But he, he started working during Troughton and he kept going through to... Uh, I believe he died while working on The Trial of the Time Lord. Oh, yes, of course. That's why Pip and Jane had to take over. You're right, of course. So, yeah, like, very prolific. And if you look at, like, the titles that he's associated with and compare them to sort of the famous, iconic, pole-topping titles in classic Doctor Who... There's a lot of overlap. Spearhead from Space, Terror of the Autons, Ark in Space... Pyramids of Mars, Brain of Morbius, The Deadly Assassin, The Talons of Wen Chiang. And then he disappeared for a bit. He came back for The Caves of Androzani, The Two Doctors, and then, he, yeah, as you say, he passed away whilst working on Trial of a Time Lord. Which, I mean, what a, what a contribution to the show's history. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about Deadly Assassin soon and talk about shaping the mythos of the show. Also, people tell me Caves of Androzani is like the best Doctor Who episode. Right, the only reason that we haven't done it so far is that you need more context before we do. Right. It wouldn't make sense to do it as the first Davison story we did, otherwise we would have done. So when I was soliciting some fan input on this story... This uh, The difference between Season 7 and Season 8 was the main thing people focused on. The general consensus being that Season 8 was worse than Season 7. Uh, Sir Anthony Eden, presumably not that Sir Anthony Eden, says, um, Comparing Spearhead to Terror is rather unfortunate. Spearhead's by far the superior product. Very little, save for a tentacle, lets it down at all. The action, drama, threat and location are all excellent. It's the best opening for any Doctor and the only one to use the post-regenerated confusion to good effect. Then there's a, broadly a lot of agreement with that take. Right. But then another poster called Heron said, just to add some balance, I think Season 8 wipes the floor with Season 7. It's far from perfect, but it was the exact right direction for the show to take. After the overbearing drear of the prior season, culminating in a shocking nadir in the Inferno, a story consisting of two equally dull plot lines abhorrently mashed together, Auton's colourful and lively bat <coughs> craziness gives the show a much needed facelift. Um, I have to say, I think that you will not enjoy season seven stories as much. They are greyer. Well, I, I can deal with grey. I, I, I've always been fascinated by the, the premise of Inferno, so... Splitting the difference, a poster just called Ricky says, um, As an exercise in imagery, it's all just about works, but watch straight after Inferno, Terra's new direction feels jarring. 
jarring is a word everybody used. Um, the next story swings back to Warder season seven style, then back again in the next, and it really doesn't settle down until seasons nine and ten. So terror is an evolutionary step, maybe not a great story, but a necessary one. Right, 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 right. Like season seven has got its monsters, but it's very, it has a more grounded feeling. Even something like the Silurians, where they are monsters, they're inherently earthbound. Season eight, then, what I would say is it takes what season seven was doing, but fits in more of the classic Doctor Who aesthetic. It's definitely more colourful, which is why I think that it's probably more in line with what you would enjoy. You're saying I like four-colour pastel comic book nonsense rather than well, complicated? Let me, let, let's be straight. Did you enjoy this story? Yes. This story, which has men in giant smiling heads killing people with lethal daffodils. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I am also on record as saying that Time Lash is a better episode of Doctor Who than Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah, so... like, you, you are definitely a season eight person, not a season seven person, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a diversity of takes. I told her again last night. Mm-hmm. Elsie, cut out the hard-boiled eggs, I said. Quite apart from their effect on my digestion, that is aesthetically boring. Have there been many episodes of Doctor Who, which are what I might call contemporary pure historicals, by which I mean uh, episodes which are kind of low on actual science fiction, except for the fact the Doctor is present solving problems? So this is a topic which I have discussed quite passionately in the past. The Pertwee era got close, but it never quite did that, and I've always been fascinated by that idea. The only issue, I guess, would be the sensitivity of addressing real-world conflicts that are still active conflicts when the show's going out. Yeah, I mean, I think it needs to be done sensitively. And also, you run the risk of going, well, you know, okay, what if the Doctor solves this random political problem, why does the Doctor solve all... Right, exactly. Right, so you run into those, which I think are present anywhere in the show and you have to worry about them. The, the way that I've always imagined tackling it was in the, the Doctor not being able to just resolve it all and therefore having to deal with living with these things that he can't solve and also can't get away from because of his exile and that then gives you a nice sort of character arc of him having to understand what life is like for normal people in a way that he's never had to deal with before. I I mean, I think that'd be a really interesting story. So let's dig a little further into the brig and unit and these characters we're revisiting and talk about them in this episode. Yeah. I mean, the brig is just a great character, isn't he? I can see why he is so beloved. I I wasn't sure. I I had no context for the brigadier. And I was like, well, is he going to be just some army guy as a character. Like, I know he's beloved by fans, but maybe he won't appeal to me. But that's just not the case at all. He really is this great contrast to the Doctor in the way he solves problems in his whole manner. But he's a friendly character. He's not aggressive, you know? He's already slightly different here to the invasion. Yeah. Not in the sense that his character has been diluted, but in this serial sense that they've got to know each other better, that they have more history now. Right. Now, like, there's a familiarity. There's a, dare I say it, friendship there. 
I think collegiate might be the best word in the sense that they are literally colleagues. Colleagues, absolutely, exactly. And there's that light tension because the Doctor is not quite within the unit chain of command. Yeah, there is a friction there rather than it just being chummy. And that's part of, I think, what makes it so memorable. Right. It's not just a nice friendship. It's uh, this sort of slight friction and tension. There's a bit near the end where the Brigadier has basically ordered an airstrike but the Doctor goes there and the Brigadier has to kind of call it off. I can't remember exactly what's going on, but there's a part where the Doctor is being stubbornly dismissive of the Brigadier, and eventually I think Joe finally gets through to him that he needs to pay attention, and he kind of just gives a little wry smile to indicate his realisation that, oh, he's actually gone too far, he's been a bit of an arsehole. <laughs> right. One of my favourite bits in this, actually, is... um. There's a part where the Doctor jumps in to defend the Briggs character and it comes not long after the Doctor being very sniffy toward the Brig and a bit high-handed. Right, it's a, it's a sort of, no one's allowed to bully my pet human but me. But it, that no, because it's not patronising like that. No, it, no you're it's right. It's the other way around. It's this sense of like, no, actually, at base, what I have is respect for this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. The other connection here, apart from the Brig, and a, a more minor one, although in a sense of being unfair, is uh, Sergeant Benton also comes back. Right. And, you know, a bit like you said in the Aztecs that Ian's there to hit things, Benton and Yates are basically there to be the extras, but with the new conceit that we'll have the same extras every time. But that is a little bit unfair. The reason that Benton is here, I think, is quite nice, which is that he was just an extra nobody part on the invasion, and Douglas Camfield recognised that John Levine had the potential to be a proper good actor, so he he built up Benton's part and added him to their slate of recurring characters because he saw something in him. Right. And, you know, it was a smart thing to do because Benton's part isn't in any way a big famous part, but people remember and love the character. Right, right. And I think I think it's important for this sort of setting or context. You don't just have one or two characters who are your big characters, but then all your sort of minor, minor lot are very forgettable. I think what really makes this kind of setting work is to have recurring minor characters who are as three-dimensional and interesting in their own way and garner kind of fan support. And I think yeah. that really makes something feel much more... It makes it pop, if you like. We add a, a second familiar face to Benton with Mike Yates who doesn't really define himself here but in an interesting use of that seriality Mike Yates well first of all he'll have a bit of a flirtatious on and off again romance with Joe that because it's 1970s BBC tea time TV never goes anywhere right um, but also he will eventually betray the Doctor, become a villain, and then get a redemption story in Pertwee's final story. And that's something that you couldn't have done in the Troughton era because because there was no groundwork to do something like that. And that's fascinating. I and mean, I don't know anything about the character, so I'm sort of looking forward to seeing more of him. And it's just that thing of having having more than one recurring character because then you get dynamics between those characters. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be said for just the fact that Familiar faces make it feel more like it isn't just episodic. And do you, do you think I, I was thinking about like what I might call the modern unit stories? Do you think they've achieved that in modern unit? Um, I think they started to achieve it after Day of the Doctor 
once they added Osgood. Yeah, because Osgood is a bit of a mink, but yeah, Osgood is a good example of. I mean, I don't, I don't mean just because of her. I just mean that it was that was the point where it began to feel continuous. Right, right, yeah. You know, doing a story specifically about the outcome of settling the Zygons in Day of the Doctor, it has some of that serialness. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's funny how I think when I was first getting into Who and reading about Unit, it, they reminded me of Torchwood. You know, I, I had heard of Torchwood before I'd heard of Unit. It, that there's there's something about the way that they kind of both have some manner of establishment backing, or at least have some. There's an interesting story to be done at some point about a clash of jurisdictions. Right, a, a Unit versus Tor- Torchwood sort of scenario. Because. Unit is governmentally backed, whereas Torchwood is actually backed by the royal family. It's actually extra-governmental. Yeah, or it's in a very weird constitutional place where it's like, well, the Queen is, you know, it's like, is ah, yeah, the idea that maybe Torchwood is using, like, one of those, you know, the prerogative powers of the Queen that she has. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, oh, that's really, that's really interesting, actually. And, like, um, but I bet Unit is backed by, that Unit's jurisdiction is presumably given by, like, treaty law, treaties that have been put into UK law or whatever, right, because it's technically an international yeah. org. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a political dimension here, right, because it's about... Have you seen the original House of Cards trilogy? I have, yeah, a while ago, but I have seen so it. So do you, do you remember the second one to play the king uh yeah that kind of conflict is what i'm picturing right where it's that dynamic between you have the sort of slightly child-esque king who's just been crowned and is a bit interfering and doesn't like the government and it's it's mm, oh yeah oh i mean wait, it's a full-on battle of wits between i can't remember who plays the king michael kitchen but the guy playing the king and miles richardson as urquhart ian richardson they are like locked in a full-on battle of wits where both of them have a jurisdiction and can argue that the other one does not. Right, right. It's an interesting dynamic. Like, having a secret organisation run by the president in the US would feel very different to a secret organisation run by the royal family here. It has different kind of connotations right, exactly. and resonances. And what I like about a story like that is you could kind of do it about Doctor. I can't remember, is it established in the new show where Unit have been before their recurrence in the Santaran stratagem. They appear in Aliens of London. Oh, do they? Oh, are they that explicit? They're just very forgettably random soldiers, but they are unit. Are they explicitly unit? They are explicitly oh, unit. Oh, that's cool. I mean, obviously that makes sense, but I didn't think I picked up that they were unit there. Yeah, they, they don't even have any lines, but they are. Well, I think there's one of the soldiers that gets bossed around. The reason it's explicitly unit is because that's how the Doctor gets them all to follow him. Right, 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 right. Unit. United Nations Intelligence Task Force. Good people. How do you know Because he's worked for them. Oh, yeah, don't think I sat on my backside for 12 months, Doctor. I read up on you. You look deep enough on the internet or in the history books, and there's his name, followed by a list of the dead. That's nice. Goodbye, Ricky. If you know him, why don't you go now? They wouldn't recognise me. I've changed a lot since the old days. Okay, so let's talk about Joe Grant, who is the new character. Who is ostensibly also a member of UNIT, although she never feels like Yeah, and actually, the, the Brigadier has some kind of line about how she is imposed on UNIT by some relative, I think. She's basically like the equivalent of the intern who's... Intern, yes. There's a degree of nepotism? Yes. Intern is a really good summary. I like that. Yeah, she's the intern. Which has some negative aspects because I think it plays to a degree to which she is chauvinistically treated. It feels a little bit like she's dismissed, but she does get some good, good moments where actually she, she proves her worth. 
So I don't think this is a good introduction to Joe. Right. Uh, well, you, you've, you've seen more of her as well, so you actually know what's being introduced better. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. In that case, I suppose you could say that I think it is a good introduction to Joe because I think Joe is a bad character. This introduces well a character who I do not think is very good. Right. <laughs> she is introduced as a liability. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree, right? Like, I think she gets some nice moments, but a lot of this story is a bit like, there were some bits I put my teeth on edge. Even when it wasn't egregiously bad in this episode, I could sort of see the shape of where the character clearly could become. You know, we saw bits of in The Mutants. Right, if anything, she's at her worst here. Just introducing a character who immediately causes a problem and gets people into trouble is either a very brave way to introduce a companion or a very foolish way. And in this instance, it's the latter. She does get a chance to rescue the Doctor from the circus. Uh, that was, I think, the moment I'm thinking about where she gets a chance to have some agency and do a thing. It didn't feel quite like, as it felt very much like when we were watching The Mutants, that she was like literally getting kidnapped every five seconds. When you said in The Mutants that you could replace it with like an important box. <laughs> this is actually worse than that. Because an important box wouldn't cause the problems that Joe causes in this story. I, I mean, for me, actually, that's not so bad that she causes problems because it at least makes her a character with, like, she acts within the story. Yeah, that's a fair point. It's actually a, a good segue into a couple of uh, quotes I got from fans on the forums here. Like The two main topics that people brought up were the way in which season eight rebooted season seven and takes on Joe. So uh, Dr. Q said that on the surface level, she's a throwback, which is interesting because in my head, I'm like, yeah, she's she's almost like the archetypal example of what old companions were. But he points out that she's a throwback to companions that never were. So so why, why, why a throwback and what, what does it mean by... Well, like I said about uh, Letts and Dix and how their vision in, influenced what people thought Doctor Who was, they actually create this style of character for the first time and it defines what the companion role is so in people's heads all of the companions are like joe even though joe was actually defining something for the first time right so she doesn't feel like she's doing something new but she is before 2005 companion was one term for this character role and another term that isn't used anymore but before 2005 was also used a lot was assistant yeah and Joe typifies the doctor's assistant. Yeah, uh, well, and you know, I made I made the intern jibe. Maybe t since two thousand and five, it's changed, but people used to see all of the doctor's companions as being in that role. I have to say, a, a modern Doctor Who companion who felt like an intern to the doctor, but not in the way that Joe is here, right? Maybe an alien is like I don't know. I just isn't that that's kind of what Nardole is. Uh, I was literally about to say like, have I just like is that what is Nardole yeah. the modern jo Nardole is the modern Joe Grant is what you're saying? I think that's true. I think that might be true. But yeah, anyway, so Doctor Q says that you know people and this might be a, an older fan thing see Joe as a throwback to what companions had been in the past after Liz Shaw had been something very modern. But in fact, she wasn't a throwback at all. They, they go on to say that she's fresh out of school. She merely needs experience rather than being ignorant or foolish. Although there is that line which I really didn't like where she basically like, ah, oh, well, actually, I didn't pass my A-level in chemistry or whatever it is. Yeah. They say the fact that she's set up with strengths and weaknesses from her first appearance is actually is, is a, a good thing. It's less one note than introducing companions as 
either just dopey and foolish or just brilliant that she's more rounded. I do agree with that, and that's kind of what I've, I know. I know you. I know you're not a fan here, but like, I mean, I don't have a problem with introducing a character, a character that causes problems, but then also manages to do some good stuff. The the flip side to this, the probably the view that's closer to my own, came from a poster called Mister Steerpike, uh, probably a Gorman Gast fan, who said, um, after the pretty wonderful and entirely believable Liz Shaw, we trade down for one of the least convincing and most dated companions in Joe. She can be charming on occasion, but it's very jarring and regressive to have her on board after Liz. I actually have a question. Is she meant to be younger than she looks? Yeah, so actually, yeah, she's meant to be five years younger than Katie Manning actually is. Oh, not, not that Katie Manning is old here by any means, right? It's just that, like, you know that thing when you have, like, te- like not quite as egregious as that, but when you have, like, 30-year-olds playing teens? I don't think her age actually has that much to do do with it i think it's far more just about terence dick's misogynistic ideas about women women that even if she'd been meant to be 35 she would have been exactly the same right so i think uh, yeah so i think what i'm picking on to a degree is that she feels quite infantilized yes that's a very good word for it and so i I think i am picking up to a degree that like katie manning is clearly not as young as terence dick's is writing her but i think you are absolutely correct that that is because terence dick's has a well, I mean, he specifically got rid of Liz Shaw and replaced her with Joe because he didn't like how progressive Liz Shaw was. Right, exactly. And it's compounded by, as we remarked on the mutants, there is a certain amount of chauvinism in the patriarchal manner of Pertwee. Yes, and we talked about this in the mutants. That's not always a bad thing in a show if the show is mm. critiquing Conscious. it. Yeah. So the invasion has a few lines about feminism. We we remarked on this at the yeah. time, I think. But um, there, I seem to recall, I felt a little better about it. Yeah. Well, in that case, they get they're essentially getting one over on Jamie, and it's Jamie is in the wrong. Clearly, I think also to agree because Pat is not playing as chauvinistic a version of the Doctor, whereas you almost need more pushback to make a character like the, like I didn't think it is a bad idea to have. You know, Pertwee belittles everyone around him. That's one of his character traits. That's not an inherently bad character trait, but because Dix, as the writer, is patronising in how he writes Joe, it becomes a problem that Pertwee's character trait is also that. Yes, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I don't think it's a bad idea for the Doctor to be to have kind of character flaws in that sense. But I do think you need to think about the way you're writing the rest of the show to sort of contrast and butt up against it. You don't want to affirm it. Right. Because in some sense, it almost ends up endorsing that behaviour, which I don't think is good. Exactly. I quite like the sort of continuing. The Doctor is really frustrated with the Brig for like the lack of good scientific resources that you need to have. I mean, I appreciate, of course, this is a a facet of the budget to some degree, but it also feels quite realistic for sort of the time-ish. You know, all the military bases are in kind of like... Sheds, or not sheds. Yeah, we're critically under-resourced, Doctor. There is, in fact, an entire organisation here trying to run on a biscuit and two bob. Right, precisely. Uh, And, you you know, you're castigating us, but actually we are doing the best of what we've got. Mr Steerpike, incidentally, also had some words about UNIT. They said that they feel less like a military group here and more like a few spare army men. And it doesn't help that the brigadier drives around in a pastel blue domestic car in the middle of military operations. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, that is a bit odd. Um... Like, they definitely feel less military here than they did in the invasion. 
But as you say, there is a sense where you're like, well, yeah, Britain in the 1970s, not that much money to spend. And it feels realistic that you would be putting your defence budgets into, well, technology, right? And they, they, we, we see a couple of like units, yeah. administrative technology research stations and whatever, and all the unit labs and stuff, they sort of feel right, you know? Like, like, I'm like, oh yeah, that feels slightly run down. And they have to me the vibe of my old science labs at school. Exactly, exactly. They feel like science classrooms. And actually the slightly school-esque feeling, it's a nice setting for the doctor. He's in a kind of professorial role. And, and I, I, I like the aesthetics of it all. At the time, of course, it wouldn't have felt like a history piece. It would have felt contemporary. But the point is that looking back, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of what my stereotypes of like the British Army in the 70s and the 80s was like. I mean, I like it because it's not my favourite era of the show by a long stretch. What I often say about it is that I more respect it than I like it. One of the things I do appreciate about it is that it does feel real. It has a real solidity and a real lived it's, it feels more like a real setting than anything from the 60s. Right, right. Except maybe the invasion, which, you know, makes sense. Right, right, exactly. We talked a lot in that about how it felt actually like the 60s to some degree. Or the near future. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, it, it feels like the 60s. Where they were intending to set it is immaterial, but... Right, which is actually probably true again here where the industrial concerns and the wonders of plastic are actually not very 1980s concerns, they're very 1970s concerns. Right, well, they were writing in the 1970s, so yeah, that makes sense. Right, and like I say, um, the politics of the unit era is very prominent as a result, I think, primarily of Barry Letts, who had a very strong political sense himself. Oh, what was his political leanings? Well, I mean, if, if my hypothesis is correct, you should be able to have a good sense of it from watching the story. He was very green... There's a big green motif throughout the Pertwee era. He was quite sceptical of large-scale industry. He had a certain amount of confidence in the establishment to restore order to things, although I think there are some questions about the coherency there that we should actually discuss dig into yeah so i thought it was interesting because the politics don't neatly map onto what i might call like a modern left right value set yeah if i was going to put them anywhere in modern thing i I talk about the labor right or like old labor there's a patriotism here actually and a sort of feelings about britain i think and um i mean it doesn't say it at all but it's almost slightly eurosceptic uh yes i think Sometimes you get that in unit in a the brigadier kind of laments the way that Geneva is meddling in unit. Right. Like there is a sense of Europe as meddling in Britain. Right. And it's not very prominent, but it's there. You know, I thought the master taking over the factory and then replacing all the workers with automated workers yeah. felt very much I mean, that's another thing. The one with the maggots again is a factory that's been taken over by a supercomputer. Right, and so there's this anxiety about kind of an end to a form of industries going away and being outsourced by kind of multinationals or like externalities there. And I think there's some problematic aspects of that. Maybe we won't dig into that so much. I think there's a fear of scale. Yeah. And the facelessness that comes with scale. I feel like the politics on display here is quite comfortable with an establishment which has a homely face. There's a small C conservatism to it. Yeah. 
you know, this isn't, and of course this is 1971, this is way before the Thatcherist, individualist turn of mm-hmm. the Conservative Party, uh, which is not to say they weren't right-wing, because they were. I think primarily it is green, yes, which, which is, is right. one of those middle grounds that's always somewhere between the, the sort of camps of Conservative and Labour. Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, you know, the Green Party accommodates people who would describe themselves as democratic socialists and people who would fit in the Tory party, except they really, really like green politics. And green, uh, yeah, I think I think you're right that green, green politics is like its own thing. The thing that's incongruous because of the time this story was made is that at the time, plastics were like a super product. They weren't, the, the ecological ramifications of plastics were not on people's minds then. Right, and and indeed, this almost doesn't go hard into the, they will ruin the environment. Well, no, it goes the other way. The plastics are a miracle product. Right, which are then subverted by the autons. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's what you might call standard anxiety about technology replacing stuff in ordinary life. I think you get that a bit with the daffodils, because they're plastic daffodils, right? And there's this sense of, like, artificiality overtaking nature. Yeah. And I think in some sense, it's consistent with that politics to be incoherent. Let me explain what I mean by that. I mean that... Sometimes that form of like conservationist politics um, comes from a kind of incorrect, slightly romantic view. And there is a romanticism, I think, to this. Mm -hmm. And the third doctor is a slightly romantic figure, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and that gives it all quite an interesting tone that I don't think is, you know, that the happiness patrol was very much not in this existing in the same political context as this episode. Right, exactly. And broadly speaking, the Doctor is usually not, I think, existing in the context of the John Pertwee Doctor. Right, where he's pro-establishment to some degree. Right, so this is where I say it gets kind of incoherent, because he's both very establishment, and yet almost all of the plots, sort of when you spell them out, it's like, it's clearly not... it's this relation to the establishment is, is the part that I find incoherent, where, you know, the big businesses are usually villainous. Automation, progress, growth is usually associated with the villain. There are usually devious people in Whitehall who are getting in the doctor's way. And yet there's usually also, well, unit. Unit is inherently establishment. It's a military. I think this points to the what I was calling small C conservatism before, because actually, you know, this is happening politically at a time when progress and the the progression of business and all of that that's not nat. We think of it nowadays as being naturally tied up with establishment because it it very much is mm. now. Now I, that's not to say that like capital didn't have power in the seventies, right? Absolutely, it, it did. But like the power things were in different ways, and actually, of course. What happened over the course of, of the 70s and then into the 80s in, in Thatcherism is that actually you saw some of the power shift away from, like, what the establishment is in Britain was changing. Mm. And I think to a degree, some of that incoherence is because it reflects that. Yeah. At this point, the relationship between the state and big industry is still somewhat combative. Right. 
So uh, I, I want to make a point here, which is that in 1963, Harold Wilson made the white heat of technology speech and then subsequently came into government. In 1970, so about a year before this episode, Heath beat Wilson in the general election. And so there's this sense in which, you know, you can make an argument at the time that the consensus is maybe starting to be around progress, but like there is a tussle over what that means and exactly who benefits from it and what that should look like. And I think these things are naturally reflected in the show and actually i think it's okay for a show to not necessarily be coherent oh sure if it reflects a country or a political context which is also itself not kind of coherent yes that's a good point i suppose yeah let isn't making this because he has a coherent political message that he's trying to hammer but he doesn't make it right unlike so the happiness patrol which obviously was designed to bring down the Thatcher government which as discussed previously it succeeded at um eventually you know, I'm not sure that this was made in order to advocate for a position. It's, but it's just happening in that kind of sense. Mm. It's something that I feel Russell T. Davis did, but Moffat mostly shied away from. There's political ideas in Moffat, absolutely, but I very rarely feel in Moffat that he is reflecting contemporary political yeah. context. Oxygen is like you know anti-capitalist, sure, but but yeah. Whereas, say Chibnall, you know, writes an episode about Amazon. He messes it up, but he writes an episode about Amazon, right? And that actually yeah. does feel like a in, a in a closed way to what Russell did. Yeah. I think the difference is that Chibnall is sitting down to write a political episode. And I don't think that's a thought that ever went through the head of RTD or Barry Letts. Yes. Like he's doing it. He's doing something deliberately, which was coming to these people naturally. No. No. If that's the price to change how everyone on Kandoka sees technology, then it is worth it for the cause. This isn't a cause, you're not an activist. This is cold-blooded murder. We can't let the systems take control. The systems aren't the problem. How people use and exploit the system, that's the problem. People like you. The Isabel in The Invasion feels almost countercultural. Yes. And that's an interesting element, right? In that when I think of the 70s, I think of counterculture, and there's no counterculture on display, at least here. Uh, later on, Joe will become associated with that thread. And in fact, Joe will eventually leave the Doctor and leave Unit to go and shack up with a hippie in a commune. I feel like something about her costume, even from the start, makes her look... I don't know, like... Yeah, I mean, she she is meant to be that kind of... that element. Right, and I think it's interesting that the writers treat her so dismissively, and I think that says something about their politics, right? Yeah, yeah. Later on, they think they get a little more knowing about it and occasionally allow her to puncture the Doctor's pomposity a little bit in a way that is still quite patronising, but is a little bit better. Right, 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 right. I think if I was trying to characterise exactly the the through line of politics that the Pertwee era has, it's sceptical of the big and the faceless mm. whilst quite comfortable with an establishment that has a collegiate, cosy face on it. And I think to a modern sensibility, we look at the establishment putting on a cosy face and we immediately go, you know, like that immediately raises our hackles. Sure. But at the time, it wasn't. And and you're right that that's, that, that kind of image of like noble army officers. Who, I mean, the brig presumably... Well, exactly, in... the brig. The brig is... Is that that's that's it? Yeah, I feel like people are certainly watching like war movies, but the military here isn't faceless and a bureaucracy and a sort of right. I th- like that's the thing is that 
In the Pertwee era, there is good establishment, which has a face, and bad establishment, which hasn't got a face, and you can't talk to it, and it's all automated. And I think the reason it looks a bit weird these days is we've kind of broadly moved to an understanding that, that that's a false distinction. Right, the dichotomy has broken down. Now, looking back at the invasion, I think you could see some of those elements there. Vaughn kind of falls into that sort of antagonist. I, yeah, I think it is definitely also in the invasion. So yeah, I I think you're right that fundamentally in the modern age that distinction we we don't make so much anymore. Although I, I, I no, you know, I would argue sometimes we do. It's just that who we choose to make faceless. I I still think the face faceless distinction is sometimes made. It's just that we I think what you see more commonly now is that idea of a false face. Right. Yes, the faceless big industry putting on a false face. That, I think, actually, that puts its finger on what rings false to me. These days, when you look at someone like the Brig, or at least to me, if you look at somebody like the Brig, you go, no, that's false. Nobody actually has that face. So somebody like the Brig rings untrue because right, right, you th- any nice, chummy sergeant from the military who's a good sort, really, and wouldn't stoop to the worst excesses and stuff. Not sergeant, I should oh, I feel like the officer-soldier distinction is very important. Yes, okay, true. Or, or you know, NCO, CO. But, um, yes, but I don't think I've ever felt that with Kate Lethbridge, Stuart. She doesn't feel false to me. She does to me, actually. Right, I mean, she... she... I mean, she doesn't feel in fiction as if she's false-facing, but she feels to me as it like a person that simply does not exist. Right, got you. In reality, there is no Kate Westbridge Stewart. Uh, I think even more so, the head of MI6 was it played by Stephen Fry in Spyfall. Yes. Like, that is not what the head of MI6 looks like nowadays. I'm almost more forgiving of that because that is more of a deliberate pastiche of James Bond, whereas Kate is more portrayed as an actual inhabitant of a real universe. Right, exactly. Referring back to Torchwood, Yvonne feels very... She's sort of public sector, but also feels like she's in the the private sector in a way that feels very much about public-private things fusing in the context of the noughties and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mean, Yvonne is one of my favourite characters. I mean, she's had a big life after the show on audio drama, but even just in in a TV appearance, I, I think she's great because of... You you know exactly who she is, but she isn't an obvious archetypal stereotype of any one part of life. She is representative of the problematic place where these different strains collide, and she's she's right at the heart of that. Yeah, and again, to I mean, I do like a lot of stuff Moffat does. I shouldn't be sitting down, but Moffat doesn't tend to write real people. And that's kind of okay, because that's sort of not often what he's trying to do. Yeah. As you say, sometimes Doctor Who does story prestiges, and that's that's fine and good. But it's just not quite... You know, even when you have contemporary Who under Moffat, it doesn't feel contemporary quite in that sense. And to a degree, I think this is something Chibnall does a little better. A little better. Yeah, no, I, I think Chibnall has actually grounded the show better than Moffat ever did in Sheffield, for one thing. Yeah, you know, I'm from Sheffield. I could believe these people are from Sheffield. So I think Kate actually is a really good encapsulation of how false-faced characters and characters who feel real and grounded pertain to the politics that's going on here. Because Kate feels false to me now, because I don't think people like that exist, and the difference is that to Barry Letts, People like the Brig probably did exist in his mind, and so the politics isn't a contradiction. Yeah. I think in, in his mind is an interesting point, right? In that 
can't imagine the British Army in the 70s was a fantastic place. But I imagine Barry Letts thought people like the Brig existed. Yeah, well, you, you know, they worked with the military on the invasion. Right, exactly, that's true. Uh, and subsequently in the Pertwee, right, they had a good relationship with the military. Which is, again, fascinating. Well, what's the girl doing here, anyway? Unit's no place for trainees. No, I couldn't agree more, Doctor. But Miss Graham was very keen to join us. And she happens to have relatives in high places. So you try to palm her off onto me. Well, it won't work, Brigadier. I'll have a properly qualified assistant or none at all. A lot of the aliens and monsters and creatures in this era are clearly quite politically inspired. The Autons, not as much as others, but even, like, plastic, industry, pollution... Like, that's a very Doctor Who thing in this era. Absolutely. The Autons are almost like the perfect faceless big industry. They're literally replica humans who are faceless. Right, they actually don't have a face. They are literally plastic. They are literally hollow. I enjoy the number of times that someone pulls off a rubber mask in these. Oh yeah, you're talking about false faces. I think stories are fundamentally improved if someone is it reaches under their chin and pulls off a rubber mask. Oh, you're gonna love. You're gonna love the Delgado Master stories. <laughs> like fundamentally, that is everything that I want in a because the master does it when he pretends to be like the the janitor and then he does it to the, the master does it every single story he is in he never stops right except he doesn't do it in uh, a lot of modern hill but he did in world enough and time no I mean specifically the Roger Delgado master right right I see I see so in in world enough and time is that a bit of a callback then when he right yeah that the world enough in time reveal is specifically a callback and such a good one, because even knowing that John Smith Sim was in that episode, I didn't realise. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then he pulls the mask off, and you're just like, it's a funny callback, but it's a funny callback that's also actually got you, and it's it's brilliant. Right, right, right. And then you've got the, the autumn throwing himself as a police officer, and then at the end, you've got the hypnotised character. That's really dark, and I kind of don't want to spoil it, so there's a big spoiler coming here, where... It seems like they've killed the master, but what the master has done is actually put a master mask on somebody else who is innocent and hypnotised so that they wander out and get killed. And that guy, incidentally, he's hypnotising at the start of the episode. He runs the plastic factory. His father gets murdered by the master. His associate gets murdered by the master. At one point, he struggles three, but he's sort of too weak-minded. So, you know, he gets re-hypnotised, we find out. The, the master uses him, discards him, and he gets killed. He's actually killed by unit. Right. Who are being too trigger-happy, which is, like, more of a commentary than I think it's meant as. Yeah, no, I mean... Because I think that the point is supposed to just be that the Master has really played them. But actually, it's a quite dubious moment. Yeah, no, it's just quite... Not quite dark. It's very dark. There's a lot of dark and, like, horrific moments. A lot of people die in this story. It looks kind of comical, but the people being suffocated by the daffodil pollen spew... Like, suffocating isn't pleasant. No. Even the guy eaten by the chair is kind of horrific. Which is, is kind of funny. Like, it's certainly a clip I'd seen sort of separately and gone, ho, ho, ho. It's unfortunately, it's a clip that people really know as, that's what Doctor Who used to be. And it's like, well, at the time, plastics were a new invention and an inflatable chair was actually a thing people hadn't seen before. And the kind of oily slickness, like, they were going for something very clever that wasn't, Right. Like something people would have seen before. I'm not saying it looked good then, but it looks worse now. So yeah, I, I think that I, I'm really excited actually just to see more of this unfurl. Uh, it's it's weird in some ways that the Chibnall story, Praxius, 
the one about the plastic virus or whatever yeah, it yeah. is. But that's not about the nesting. Yeah. That episode is very Pertwee era in general. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's plenty of Pertwee era who episodes that feel like this that aren't about the nesting. Right, it's just that specifically it's about plastic accumulation, right? Right, yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, it's sort of funny how Russell T. Davis sometimes made, like, monsters kind of cousins or something. Yeah. Like the Ood and the Sensei. The Ood and the Sensei, or the Silithine and the Absorbalor. So you could imagine the Adipose and the Nesting being linked, and indeed you could sort of imagine the stuff stuff in Praxius and the Nesting being linked. I quite like it. I'm a sucker for that sort of, like, what I might call continuity cameo. Yeah. I mean, my favourite one of those is Alpha Centauri turning up at the end of Empress of Mars. Yeah, I, I, I like this. I like this sort of little links. Um, the Autons are a good example of the Yeti on the toilet in Tooting Beck, which is a phrase that Terence Dix and John Pertwee often mention in interviews about the monsters are scarier when you see them romping around like London or the home counties because you can picture them being sort of in your life, like running into them. They talk about like how in the Web of Fear, because it was set in the London Underground rather than in the Himalayas, that it's scarier because of the idea that you could find a Yeti in the toilet at Tooting Bay. Do you think that like links to this fear of the faceless unknown? I don't think it's that deep. I think it's just the idea that hey, they're in a place you know. That's creepy. Sure, okay, fine. <laughs> it's not that deep. I think specifically the Autons are about the uncanniness that you get from shop mannequins. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, in many ways, I think they were the perfect monster to start with in Rose. Ultimately, it's not really about the mythology. Okay, sure, there's some motivations for the nesting consciousness or whatever. But ultimately, it's about the weird and uncanny entering ordinary life. Yeah. It's no surprise that they were what RTD chose as the first ever monster for New Who, because they are very classically Doctor Who. They're an uncanny thing in modern life that's been given sinister form. It's the thing that everybody knows. It's the kind of the thing that the kids can recreate on the playground on Monday. It's yeah, they're, they're a really classic creation. Let's say Doctor Who got cancelled, but then it came back, and I like to think that would happen. So I, hmm. I wonder if the Weeping Angels would form a similar. I mean, I think that Moffat piled so much extra continuity onto the angels that their original elegance got very muddy. So I agree, but almost my point is that if the show was rested and rebooted, you wouldn't need to worry about any of that. Yeah, that's true. It's not important at all in Rose that the Autons invaded Earth sometimes before and once were a tentacle monster and did some, you know, that's, yeah, that's yeah. irrelevant. Yeah. Because actually the, the nice thing about doing a reboot of any kind is that you can kind of just power way down to the stuff that you really the elements you really want to emphasize yeah i think the only the, the only difference with the angels is that their gimmick is very specific it's quite constraining rather than quite broadening whereas oh they could they can animate plastic that's an open thing whereas they can only move when you can't see them is is, is like a thing that constrains yes um Another example are the Silence. Yeah, see, the Silence are fantastic villains. Right, precisely. They've got a Doctor Who twist. The the, the amnesia gimmick is, is fantastic. It opens up story possibilities. I think that with the Silence, the additional continuity where we later see them as allies of the Doctor actually improves them as opposed to the additional stuff piled on the angels, which muddied them. Yeah, that's true. I think that they would work in the manner of the Ice Warriors, where you can actually bring them back both as villains or as allies. Or 
even uh, in that way that the Ood quite often are. Yeah. I guess that's the main reason you wouldn't do it with the silence is because you've already got the Ood. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Ood, I think, are one of the best. Right, the Ood, the Ood are a genius creation. The Ood are not like the Autons. The Ood are akin to the Ice Warriors. Well, they're just so versatile in terms of how you can use them. Yeah, exactly. Which, which I think is also true of the Ice Warriors. They're just a really versatile, but they have a, a compelling backstory. You know, the, the the stuff we see on Planet of the Ood and subsequently is, is really cool. There's a lot of depth to them. But equally, if they show up and they are kind of a generic baddie, that works too. You could see it as a weakness to say that you can kind of drop them into any story because it means that they don't have huge definition. But I think it benefits some Doctor Who creations to have that capability that you can just throw them into the story. They're going to work pretty well. Just to check, am I right in saying that the Nesting Consciousness Autons and whatnot only appear in four TV episodes, right? Yeah, and in the classic series, they only appear opposite Pertwee. Right, and indeed, this is the last appearance of the Autons. Yeah, so I mean, between this and Rose, they did not actually show up. JNT did intend to bring them back, but it didn't happen. You can sort of imagine them fitting in. Like, my brain is trying to tell me they were in the Five Doctors. Right, and they were, they were supposed to be. Right, and morally, they could have been. Well, so I choose to believe that all of the planned scenes for the Five Doctors that didn't get made actually do just happen between scenes right. that you don't see. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so the Autons were meant to be, and it was meant to be Pertwee again, was meant to meet them in the Five Doctors. Uh, and JNT was going to put them against Colin, which I think also would have been a very natural fit. I I think... The Autons, it. I have to say, the Autons work much worse here than they do in Spearhead from Space, where they're legitimately terrifying. Yeah, I, I, I feel here they... I, I thought the flower was terrifying. And there's that wonderful scene where the phone cord almost kills him. Yeah, I mean, I think the Autons are scarier here when they're the sort of bizarre carnival mask people with the huge head is walking in formation. Yeah. But the actual Auton design here is rubbish. They don't quite... I mean, fundamentally, they're not in the Uncanny Valley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're not in that narrow space where your, your brain goes, Burr. Yeah. So, that's one villain. It's not, however, the chief antagonist of the story. And if there is one way in which this is not just an inferior remake of Spearhead, it's the inclusion of the Master. Right. I mean, where to start? I mean, literally, he turns this from being just an inferior retread into something completely different. Right. I almost want to start at the end and mention there's a bit which feels very master, but basically at the end, it feels like they stop the master by just sort of pointing out that the Autons will obviously betray him. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then immediately betrays him. It's like he just didn't think of that. I mean, it's exactly what happens with the Cybermen in The Five Doctors. Right. It's it's like, does he do this a lot? He basically does this in every single one of his poetry appearances because he almost always works through a proxy and almost every time the way he's beaten is actually that the person he's working with just turns on him as they were always going to and he never has any insurance. Here they don't even turn on him. The doctor's like, you do know they're going to betray him. And you know that gif of the lady who's like doing maths in her head? It's very, curse your inevitable betrayal. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's very surprised Pikachu face. The mass is like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, mate, what were you, what were you expecting? Like, literally, think about this. <laughs> I, I really enjoy the fact there is a distinct 
lack of awareness in the master. Right. Because he sits there going, ha I'm going to do this and do that and do this, and then I will betray them. And somebody goes, you know, they might, what they're probably thinking, and he's like, "What? They betray me? Who? That can't possibly happen." Right, exactly. He has this great force of will. He commands people, like he hypnotizes them, but like he doesn't ever think about the fact that people might not listen to him. Yeah, you think you could almost see those two things as related. That he's so good at dominating people that he's forgotten that actually people can just betray him. I see a great example of this, and I want to talk about obviously the contrast between modern master and then the master we're seeing here, and indeed other masters. But I'm thinking about when his wife betrays him in the end of Last of the Time Lords, right? Which is actually a really great example of the master not accounting for the fact that people have agency. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's um, she's a very interesting character. Yeah. So, um. I think it is how they resolve almost all of these plots. And that may, in fact, kind of speak to why they always have the Master working through proxies, that the way that they beat him is to actually not beat him themselves, but to have his plan blow up in his face. And that also means that the Doctor isn't simply beating him directly in his first appearance, which is kind of important, I think. Yeah, so I think the interesting thing here is we're introduced to the Master, but then this Bola Hassad Time Lord comes down and is like, ah, your rival from the Academy is here, that baddie called the Master. I I love Bola Hat Time Lord. I like that he appears with like a TARDIS noise, but he he doesn't have a TARDIS, he's just sort of there. Instead, clearly a very establishment figure. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, he's he's dressed as a bank specifically right bowler hat and umbrella right yeah uh i I was sort of reading bank or civil servant but yeah something something of that kind yeah yeah high establishment although there is a clear sense that he is supposed to be in earth drag right right exactly but what does the time lord look like when they're wearing earth drag they look like high establishment yeah it's a big contrast from how they appear when we see them in the war games pronouncing judgment on the Doctor. Which is more... More sort of the traditional... They don't have the big collars, but they have got the robes and the sort of austereness. Right. I do think that he's not the austere robed Time Lord, but actually he's incredibly callous about telling the Doctor that his life is in danger because of the sentence they have imposed on him. And he's not going to do anything about it Right. But I did, I genuinely thought, like, as funny as that scene is, that this guy almost felt more ruthless than the big collar time lords. Right. It's just amoral, like, oh, by the way. And it's a little bit, in fact, like, if we want to make the James Bond comparison, he is the M figure, very dispassionately uncaring about his rogue agent on Earth. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that does is it also provides a vital little bit of context as to what the orthodoxy that both the Master and the Doctor are rebels against. Is, yeah, and it becomes clearer why you would rebel against it. Yeah, I think it actually works really. It's it's funny here, but it also emphasises that, you know, because you're setting up the villain here, he'll be the villain throughout the season, it does that well. It establishes that he's cleverer than the Doctor, and he does get one up over the Doctor multiple times. Including immediately after that appearance of the Time Lord. Right, exactly. And so I think that immediately underlines that this threat is... I think it tells you a lot about the Doctor's perception of the Master, that his response is, Huh, that jack and apes Not, oh God, no, like, gasp. Right. I'm not sure that changes over the course of this episode, right? It's very public schoolboys, isn't it? Well, it ends with the Doctor saying, I'm sure he'll pop up again, and I'm rather looking forward to it. Right, and so it has this wonderful 
a lot of people take issue with that line because the Doctor apparently really enjoyed this adventure where loads of people died horribly. I think that that's very in keeping with how Pertwee is portrayed at this point as deeply resenting being exiled to Earth. And I think it's completely in character that the Doctor's briefly forgotten all of these deaths because finally he's got a friend to play with. Right, exactly. It's two Time Lords basically playing on Earth. It is a little bit, in fact, like a war game or like the game of Rassilon. Well, I mean, we've established that the Master is really bad at the game of Rassilon. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is sh- <laughs> he is really bad at the game of Rathalon. Uh <laughs> But you know <laughs> An old acquaintance has arrived on this planet huh? One of our people The master That jackanapes all he ever does is cause trouble You think about continuity and whatever mm. They've taken the dematerialization circuit out of the TARDIS So they can't move And then the Doctor steals the dematerialization circuit from the Master's TARDIS. He tries using his own TARDIS, it doesn't work. But the end result of it is that the Master gets trapped on Earth when he was when that wasn't the status quo at the start of the series. So it, it really feels like there's this through line where he's been established as being on exile, so his TARDIS can't move. And then the Master himself gets trapped in a way that's linked to the reason the Doctor is trapped. And then that will then continue forward. And that is a serial story beyond the serial, right? Yeah. It means next time when the master turns up, he could get that back and then he'd be able to move his TARDIS or the TARDIS, you know, you can sort of see... Right, it's it's changed the terms of engagement for the next time they meet. Right, and so if we look at this as as a game, and and of course the the master loses this round because he's bad at the game of wrestling. There are times when he could almost win, but he doesn't really want to. Right, it's almost about sort of losing in a way that means he gets to fight another day. Like, he toys with the Doctor. It takes, it's quite a long while before they actually meet face-to-face. He toys with the Doctor. He gets the Doctor into these situations where he probably could kill the Doctor. And then he kind of backs off. He feels a bit like, uh, you know, a dog chasing its tail. He's not sure what he'd do if he caught it. So one thing that I think separates this Master from every other Master is that he is essentially doing everything he does just for fun. He's not in desperate need of anything. He's got no past that's got, like, there's nothing going on there except he's just doing it for the sake of it. And if killing the Doctor deprives him of his entertainment, yeah, it would be self-defeating. Because there is no broader, like, yes, the Doctor can foil his plans, but his plan only exists for the hell of it in the first place. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that transition, which we'll see when, when we see some of the later Masters, is going to be interesting to reflect on. We'll, we'll never really see the transition which is kind of interesting. Right. The status quo will just kind of fundamentally change. I mean, the Master disappeared off screen for 10 years. Because of Delgado's death, essentially. Yeah. Um, no, but I'm looking forward to seeing the Master again after this new status quo. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because I think, I think he does genuinely panic when the Doctor might destroy his TARDIS thing. Because it is a game, but he mm. kind of doesn't want to lose his TARDIS because actually that, that actually adds stakes to it, right? That means he is now actually down something right. rather than playing. Yeah, that's the thing. Is For most of the story, there is no stakes for the Master. So it doesn't really matter if the Doctor beats him. But if he kills the Doctor then he's actually, that's kind of losing the game. Right, and if he gets trapped on Earth... Yeah, then suddenly it's it's not pretend anymore. Right. It's like when play fighting between kids spills over into actual fighting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you could view the death of Farrell at the end of this as sort of like the play fighting spiralling out of control into something which is becoming very real. Although the Doctor, as I mentioned, the Doctor doesn't seem to care very much. 
Yes, I mean, I, I, I assume people have written greatly at length about homoeroticism between John Poetry and the Master. The master. I, I don't really want to rehash that here, but there is that sense of, like, teasing to get someone's attention. There are times where the Master literally says that he did a thing to get the Doctor's attention. Buddy, just call him. And similarly, you can kind of see that the Doctor's reaction at the end of this, which is kind of impersonal and a bit alien, as the Master bringing out the worst side of the Doctor. Right, and the worst side of the Doctor is not actually being evil, it's viewing things as a game. Which is, when Missy turns up in Dark Water, that's explicitly what she's kind of trying to do. Uh, and then obviously the arc there is it ends up going the other way and it's the Doctor that brings out the better side of her personality. Right, but she is explicitly going, look, I liked it when you played fun games. Here, look, I've brought you an army because I know it'll make you do a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. She knows what the reaction will be and that she's getting a lot from that. So I, I think that Missy has a lot in common with the Roger Delgado master. And she again is a master for whom there are no broader stakes. Indeed. And uh, notably a master incarnation which unit is embroiled with. Embroiled. Yeah. I, I don't think there's almost anything in common with the John Sim master and this one. I mean, there is a continuity between the two. Like, you know, clearly there was a route, there was a journey from how the mm. character gets from there to there. But very little of what John Sim is doing with the Master, I would argue, is really drawing on a lot of what Delgado is doing here. So, in my opinion, John Sim is a Master that really taps into what we'll see with the Peter Pratt, Jeffrey Beavers uh, Master, the two actors, but it's one incarnation, yep. who appear in The Deadly Assassin and The Keeper of Tracken. But I think that the Mr. Saxon stuff is meant to be Delgado-like. It doesn't quite work. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? I could plausibly believe that Roger Delgado's master gets himself made Prime Minister. Like, yep. So the Demon Head Master in the second series, <laughs> The Prime Minister's Brain, is about the Demon Head Master basically wanting to get access to the Prime Minister of Britain in order to hypnotise him and take over the world. I mean, that is very... I mean, the the Demon Head Master, I, I would say, as a children's TV antagonist, owes a lot to the Master. Not just the hypnotism, although that, that, but like a lot of the scope of the plans, the slight ridiculousness. Yeah. I mean, of course, they're both drawing on archetypal arch villains that go before that. But yes. Actually, one thing I want to say is that he is, he is a hypnotist, but... And this isn't something you see a lot of when people hypnotise stuff, I feel like, nowadays. And again, there's this cultural context here of, you know, this is a time when, I think this is about when people were like, like popular books about Freud were like a thing that people would read. Like awareness of like psychology, of like a sexy science in the popular consciousness, I think was very much a mm. thing. And when the master hypnotises people, he's not using magic or psychic powers. He's using dominance of personality and mentalism and there's this thing where you know joe does something against her nature and then the doctor basically spouts a lot of psychiatric techno babble effectively as to why she's not recovering yeah in this instance the master is not really portrayed as psychic he is like a studied mentalist yeah like he's a Darren brown figure it's kind of like this isn't a psychic power it's just a thing that you can learn to do if you have big enough eyebrows. Yeah. Um, no, he's great. I mean, he he looks so... I don't know if that's Delgado's natural beard colour, but, you know, he's got that kind of badger, black and grey beard, and yeah. the eyebrows, and the gloves. He, he's he's just so villainy, uh, and the slick-backed hair. But he also looks very cool, you know. Unlike Fawn, say, from The Invasion, who doesn't, I would argue, look cool. Yeah. 
he's got a, a real effortless... I mean, there's an episode where he like rolls up in a car listening to King Crimson, if I recall correctly. <sighs> Amazing. There's also an episode where he watches The Clangers, so make of that what you will. So uh, you know, he feels a bit kind of occultisty. Like, we're talking about characters who mm. feel like they're tapping into the counterculture. And I would argue there's a degree to which the master feels countercultural. Yes. In a more Alistair Crowley-esque way. Alistair Crowley is just exactly who I've Googled. Uh, and in fact, like in The Demons, he's going to do a satanic ritual to summon a demon. So Right. So all the signs are there. I think that, that is, again, in the contemporary context, the kind of thing. I mean, Crowley died in 47, but, you know, obviously there were people who yeah. came after him. And, you know, that... It was a yeah, thing yeah. in the popular consciousness in the zeitgeist, if you were. And I think who always yeah. obviously does this. And I, I absolutely can imagine the master doing stuff which was kind of like magic. Not overtly like magic, magic. I mean, maybe it's in the demons. Are they, are they aliens in the demons? Yeah, yeah, no, he, he, he does just do magic. Oh, it's just actually actual magic. Yeah, right. And it's just like... I mean, he's he's tapping into another dimension through blah, blah, blah. But yeah, he, he's just doing magic. He, like, he draws a pentagram on the floor, right? Some candles and chants and makes the sign of the horns. We should have more of that in, in Modern Who, I think. So, yeah, um, I don't quite think Sasha Darwin's Doctor does the same thing, but he is a bit closer to that thing of playing with... So, we're definitely going to pick this up again when we do, in a few episodes of time, The Deadly Assassin, because the Master changes as immediately after Delgado. The Deadly Assassin forever changes the inherent nature of the Master. This Master... In a sense, this is quite an iconic master, and in another sense, he is not yet full-formed as the character that we know. Right, and it's a deadly assassin that will... Right. But I would argue that, say, in Spyfall, that is a very Delgado-y story in some ways. I mean, he's got the disguise element, doesn't he? Well, and the, and the working with a proxy. That's true, yes. Yes, now that you've jogged my memory, you're right, of course, yes. That first half is... Is although of course you don't know it's the master in the first half, and in the second half he's got less of the Kasavan. Although, <laughs> how is he beaten? Oh well, the Kasavan betray him. So right, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, the incredibly problematic bit where the Doctor abandons him to the Nazis. Oh God! I mean, let's not dwell on it, but it's like a bad moment. Yeah. Uh, by the same token, we should acknowledge there is. A very racist, stereotype, black strongman character in Terror of the Autumns. Yeah, no, uh, it's bad. Um, people could say more, but we're not the right people. Yeah. So anyway, but um, so I think Spyfall is is quite a Robert Delgado story. Yeah, I think the th- the reason it doesn't quite feel like it is the way that he's working with the Kasavan primarily in Episode One, but you know he's the master in Episode Two, where the plot kind of pivots away from that plot. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, you're quite right. I think one thing that this, for some reason, I thought the miniaturization ray was a new thing. But I mean, it's not at all, right? He uses it for the first time he appears. Oh, no, no. The the tissue compression eliminator is one of the most iconic mastery things that ever did master. He replaces it with a laser screwdriver in uh, Last of the Time Wars. And people were like, why would you do that? It's so bizarre. Like, why do you have a shrink ray? Like, why is that your iconic weapon? But it's very much... Because it does kill people, but it's like... it It's in such a bizarre and, like, horrific but weird way. Well, it, it, it exemplifies the Master's whole methodology, right? No, absolutely. It's it, just it's Byzantine so... and pointless and mean. Like, like, why have you built a shrink ray when you could just build an actual ray? 
<laughs> what advantage do you get above them like once in Ascension of the Cybermen by shrinking your enemies instead of yeah. murdering them? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't. I, I don't want to say about that. It's just. Vicious, complicated, and inefficient. Typical of your way of now thinking. Now, come, come, Doctor. Death is always more frightening when it strikes invisibly. So let's park up. I mean, inevitably, you can't get away from the Master. He always comes back. So let's let him do that. But, but significantly, and again, we'll talk about this in The Deadly Assassin, that might not have been true. We mentioned that the Autons didn't come back until Rose, right? They were a purely Pertwee-era recurrence. Yeah. And the Master could have been that. He disappeared after Roger Delgado for a decade. Does he only appear in this season? No, he does come back um, further on. His last appearance is in Frontier in Space, where, guess what? What? If I tell you that he's got an alliance with the Daleks, how do you think he gets beaten? Do the Daleks betray him? How did you guess? <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> Madness is repeating the same actions multiple <laughs> times and expecting different results. You know, the problem with the Master is he's just too trustworthy. Okay, great. Well, it's a brilliantly written character. The one thing I will say is that maybe he wouldn't have been the absolute breakout success he was without Roger Delgado's specific performance. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's very strong. It's not just the writing. It's, it's the whole the... look, the manner, the way he carries himself. Like, all of his lines are massively purple, but he rises up to meet the ham. You have to sell purple. He is clearly a past master. Is that, is that a pun? or? Yeah, but a past master means an expert. It was a really good pun. Past master. I think you've made that up. No, I haven't. Oh, goodness. Well, I... I See, I've, it's in the I've, dictionary and everything. I've learned something today. Do you want to run that by me again? <laughs> no, I, 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 mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I sort of like the idea of you just doing the pun... You you killed it now. There's no way to resurrect it. I just I shot of opening the eye of harmony with the sash of Rasagon and injecting it with the energies of the time vortex. That that pun has used up its regenerations. <sighs> okay, I've just never heard that phrase. I'm so sorry. Okay, anyway, next time, next time we're going to do one of my favourite episodes for one of my favourite TARDIS crews with one of my favourite aliens that has never come back. We're going to visit the Terraleptals in The Visitation. Okay, I'm super looking forward to it. So far, all I've shown you of that is a picture of a Terraleptal and a picture of their glam robot. Which is very you. Uh, yeah, I'm very keen. All right, uh, I've been Rana. Who loves the Terraleptals? I've been Flick. And this is Relative Digressions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at Who Digressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renna Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future. Think you'll turn up again, Doctor? Mm, banter. You don't seem very worried about it. I'm not. As a matter of fact, Joe, I'm rather looking forward to it.